If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 5. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 33 through 37 in our time together this morning, continuing in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. If you really look at what Jesus is addressing in the last few weeks' passages, as well as the text we're going to be looking at this morning. He's addressing a misunderstanding of various Old Testament principles, misunderstandings that have sought to make the command of God easier than what it was intended. In other words, they have set out to lower God's standard. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And they had set the bar at the place that said, so long as I don't wield the sword or draw the knife to commit an act of violence against a brother, I have met this standard expectation. Jesus says it's a much bigger deal than that, and the issue is far deeper. If you are harboring hostility, bitterness, and anger in your heart toward a brother, you have violated the spirit of God's command, thou shalt not murder. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And in their misunderstanding, in their lowering of the standard, they had suggested that so long as the physical act of consummating adultery does not occur, then I have met the standard expectation of God's command. But Jesus says the issue is much broader and it goes much deeper. If you have so much as looked at a woman lustfully, you have committed the act of adultery in your heart. With regards to God's command regarding marriage, they had lowered the standard to such an extent that they said, so long as the paperwork has been filed legally, I have in no way violated the command of God. But God says, Jesus says, this is a much broader issue and it goes much deeper. What God has put together, let no man put asunder. Being legal does not mean being right. Now Jesus addresses the issue of honesty. The prohibition in the Bible states against lying. Thou shalt not lie, although stated somewhat differently. What is at hand here this morning, our subject is telling the truth. And in keeping with the past week's themes, we might take this even deeper and note that we're talking about truthfulness in the heart. If you found your way to Matthew 5, verses 33 and following, I'd like to invite you to stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 33. The Bible says, Jesus speaking here again, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. But let your word yes be yes, and your no be no, Anything more than this is from the evil one. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. I suspect that I share this feeling with many of you, but I am quite weary of dishonesty. I'm tired of dishonesty. When I was a kid, back in the Stone Age, in the 90s, 
you could believe the things that you saw on television with regards to news and what was unfolding in the world around us. For that matter, you could believe most of, if not all, of what you read in the newspapers. Almost nothing is believable anymore, and virtually nothing is believable on social media anymore. We are to be people of truth. Believing the gospel of truth, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the salvation of our soul, stating the truth in our speech, conducting our lives in accordance with the truth in our actions, and affirming truth in our actions and in our words. I have real concerns about Christians being sucked into so many conspiracy theories at the present hour, delegitimizing our credibility, losing our credibility when it comes to the truthfulness of the gospel because we stand ready to embrace whatever conspiracy theory suggests that somehow, some way, we were right and the world around us was wrong. This is a real issue for the church. I'm weary with dishonesty. I'm weary with falsehoods. I'm weary with deception. There's an old Johnny Carson skit. When I was a boy, my daddy worked a night shift, and from time to time I got to stay up and watch Johnny before dad went off to work. It was always the heartbreak of the night when Jay Leno would be filling in. I still have a little bitterness toward Leno <laughs> even after all these years. In the, in the skit, you have a presidential candidate who's holding a press conference. But in this press conference, he's hooked up to a lie detector machine so that every time he lies, a buzzer goes off and the whole world knows that he's deceiving the masses. This is the kind of political discourse I am interested in, right? This is, this is my proposition. This is what I suggest for the next round of presidential elections. Let's hook them all up to machines and the whole world can know the truth. It's kind of a strange thing to acknowledge, but if you think about it, in many ways, we have the technology to determine what is true and false in real time in some pretty accurate ways. But the fact of the matter is no one wants that. Because our society, the world system, is built on deception. If we knew all of the things that were unfolding in the world around us, our stomachs would be turned with disgust. We exist within a framework of dishonesty and deception. But we are citizens of a different kingdom with a different king who are to live by a different standard. Even when the world around us is lying, we are to be the people who are willing to tell the truth. This is what God requires of us as believers in the truth of the gospel, to be tellers of truth at every opportunity, to be people of uprightness and righteousness and character and integrity. Jesus addresses or at least introduces the issue at hand in verse 33. Look there with me. He says, again, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. Now, this is true, as was the case with prior commands Jesus addressed. There is nothing essentially wrong with what has been stated. You must keep your oaths. You must keep the oath that you swear to the Lord. 
That is, when you invoke the name of God, there is a special level of seriousness about the commitment you there enter into. And although there is some suggestion that this could be the case, what we don't have here is a complete prohibition against swearing an oath. I don't believe that's what Jesus means in the next verse, and we'll get to that moments from now. But when one enters into an oath, when one makes a vow and invokes the name of God, there is a special level of commitment, a a depth of sincerity that comes with that. There is nothing essentially wrong with what Jesus has described. We are to be people who tell the truth. Now, what Jesus is going to nail down in the verses to come is that you ought to be people who are committed to telling the truth, whether you've invoked the name of God in this swearing of an oath or the vow that you've entered into or not. But what is abundantly clear, the base level, the foundational principle here is that the Bible requires of us truthfulness, that we are again to be truth tellers. Now, Jesus has not so much quoted an Old Testament passage as he has summarized a number of Old Testament passages, specifically Leviticus 19, 12, Numbers 30 and 20, and Deuteronomy 23 and 21. Those are in your notes, and you might like to go and to look them up at a later time. But what was being suggested by the Pharisees, by what was being misunderstood, assumed perhaps, among those who were hearing Jesus as he preached the Sermon on the Mount, this initial occasion. They're operating under the assumption that what matters most here, that the emphasis is on swearing an oath in God's name. So the Old Testament says in a variety of places, you shall not swear falsely by my name. The emphasis for Jesus' audience, it seems, at least for the Pharisees and the scribes, was on the by my name. But what Jesus is saying is that the emphasis is in the wrong place. The emphasis in the Old Testament and the emphasis for us ought to be on the matter of swearing falsely. Whether God's name is invoked or not, we are not to swear falsely. That is, we are not to speak falsely. We are to be tellers of truth at every opportunity. The emphasis here is on the falsehood. We are to be people of honesty. We're so clever, so adept at justifying our dishonesty, at at framing our dishonesty in ways that alleviate any potential guilt or consequence that might come with that. We even have ways of stating the truth in a dishonest way, communicating dishonesty in tone, or countenance, the way we frame our words or shape our face or react to reactions to the things that we say. I can remember several years ago listening to Adrian Rogers preach on lying and talking about lying through tone, how we communicate the truth can be deceptive. He told the story of being pulled over in his days of pastoring in the state of Florida. He had a brake light out and he knew he did. And the highway patrolman pulled him over and said, sir, you have a brake light out. And his response was, I do. Now he told the truth. He did. And he knew he did. But the tone, the manner in which he communicated the truth was deceptive. And in the end, he skated on the brake light ticket and uh, got away that night. But it did not escape the sight of God. Nor does your dishonesty, no matter how innocent it may seem, escape the all-seeing eye of God who is in heaven. What is clear in the beginning of our passage and in every verse implied is that telling the truth is required by the scripture of every faithful Christ follower. 
you shall not swear falsely, should carry great weight in our life, even as you shall not swear falsely by my name, carries a special degree of weight as well. So principle number one, the Bible requires truthfulness. Number two, the Bible requires that we keep our commitments, that we do what we say we will do. Not just in the moment communicating truth, but following through, following up with the things that we intend to do. Verse 34, Jesus says, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all. And again, I don't think that this is a complete uh, casting off of no oaths whatsoever, no vows. There are places all throughout the scripture where God makes an oath or makes a vow with Israel, for instance. Even in the book of Acts, on the other side of the resurrection, we have the apostle Paul entering into a vow. There's a touch of hyperbole here. Jesus is addressing what is referenced in the phrases that follow. Don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. They're doing this grade school thing where they swear by various places or objects in order to communicate their commitment to the oath, right? Like in elementary school, it was always, y'all are going to laugh at me, but y'all will know if you're my age. It was always, I swear on my mama. That was it, right? That's like as big as it gets on the playground if you swear on your mama. You have got to do whatever you have committed to do or whatever you have expressed has to be the absolute truth because you swore on mama. That's exactly what they're doing here. And they've made ways for themselves to escape the binding forth force of you shall not swear an oath falsely by my name by swearing by various other objects. Again, their hand is behind their back and their fingers are crossed and they're swearing oaths. They're swearing by heaven. Oh, I swear by heaven, I will see this through. Or I swear by heaven, this is true. Or I swear by earth, the earth, I will see this through. It's a true thing. I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. I'm sincere. I'm being honest and forthright. I swear by Jerusalem, this is right. I swear by my own head, this is right. And what Jesus is saying here is that you cannot escape the binding force of that Old Testament law. You shall not swear an oath falsely by my name by placing the emphasis on these other objects. Jesus says you can't swear by heaven and escape the consequence of violating that oath because heaven is God's throne. And you can't swear by the earth and duck the consequences of your deception because the earth is his footstool. And you can't swear by Jerusalem and skate by the guilt of your sin because Jerusalem is the city of the great king. And you can't swear by your head and duck the consequences for your deceit because the very hairs of your head are numbered by God. You can't make one hair white or black. Your hair is white or black or whatever color it takes according to the providence of God. For that matter, your hair is either there or it is not by the providence of God. Can I get a witness? There is no way to escape the binding force of that principle. You are to keep your word. Now, 
I've been talking with the boys in the last few weeks about how we have a tendency to remember things better than they were. Like with, with our transition to here and, and having been as long as we were in our former ministry, there are times when they remember things better than they were in reality. And then we revisit those situations from time to time and they're, they're reminded that their memory is not as accurate as they might have assumed that it was. We have a tendency to do that, don't we? Some of you talk about the good old days and I wouldn't go there for anything in this world. I know what your good old days look like. And I'll take it today versus your idea of the good old days. But, but there are some things from bygone eras that are deeply missed in our culture. There was a time when a man's word was his bond. And now you need a multi-volume contract and nine attorneys to see anything through with any commitment whatsoever. As followers of Jesus, we ought to be the kind of people whose word can be trusted. The, the kind of people that when we say what we say, it can be relied upon by any in our hearing. We are to be those kind of people. Now, think for a moment with me practically about what this looks like in our lives. In 21st century Christianity, in 21st century American life, in 21st century existence in the Mid-South, what does it look like to be a people of truthfulness, a people who keep our word? I've got some ideas. One, it, it means that we pay our bills. That's keeping your commitment, right? We, we meet our financial obligations. We pay our bills to be straight. There's an ongoing discussion, and I wish in no way to involve myself in the political debate, and it doesn't matter what I think about political issues because no one from Washington will ever call me. So that's irrelevant. But there's an ongoing discussion about the idea of, of canceling the student loan debt of all student loan debtors in the United States. If they're going to do that, I wish they'd done that when I had student loan debt, but that's neither here nor there. The, the, the issue, what, I, what I'm observing is there is no conversation, no attending conversation about, about the morality of that, about the commitments that have been made on the part of those who have received funds in the form of debt and the commitment that comes with that to repay those funds. These are real issues that are touched deeply by our faith. Your shirking your financial responsibilities is not just a personal issue that's set aside from your relationship with Jesus. Every facet of our life should be deeply impacted by our relationship with Jesus Christ. Keep your commitments means living up to the financial commitments that we make in our own personal experience. It means that we keep our marriage vows. It means that we honor the sanctity of marriage under the realization that there was a moment in time in our life when we stood before God and we vowed together till death do us part in sickness and in health. We have committed ourselves together as husband and wife until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It means that we keep our vows. And I'm thankful to God that I've never come to this place in my marriage and I pray to God that I never come to this place in my marriage but there may be some of you for whom the vows that you've made before God stand to be the safety net that holds you up during a season when that is the only thing that is holding you up. Anytime I do a wedding ceremony I always warn the husband and wife the, the groom and the bride to be that after the vows we're going to pause and we're going to pray. And I'm going to pray something like this. And I always say it in jest, but I mean it with my whole heart. 
God, I pray when they're ready to kill each other, to kick the cat and toss the dishes, that they remember the vows that they've made one to another till death do us part. It means within the business world, within our field of industry, that we honor the contractual commitments that we make. That, what, that we do what we tell our clients or consumers we will do. If you want to lose credibility within your field of industry, fail to live up to the contractual commitments that you make within your area of service. It means that we punch in and we punch out according to policy. It means that we don't fudge the expense account. It means that we do the things that are required of or expected of us within the context in which God has called us to work or to serve. We are to be people of our word, seeing through the commitments that we make to others. We ought to be those kinds of of people. So we've understood thus far the Bible requires truthfulness, and that the Bible requires that we keep our commitments. I was thinking over this after the second service. There's really nothing earth-shattering about these concepts, right? Hopefully, these are the kind of principles that, that all of us understand to be a part of human experience, necessary principles in order for society to function with any level of effectiveness or efficiency. But at the same time, I I think even within the church, there is certain slippage taking place, and we allow ourselves to settle into sort of situational ethics, where we tell the truth or we keep our commitments as long as everything is going the way that we envisioned them going when we stated the truth or when we entered into commitments. At the same time, we have this phenomenon of personalizing truth in our culture, which is just confounding to me, where people talk not about the truth, but about my truth and your truth. And I would simply say to you, there is just the truth. There aren't two forms of the truth. We're not given right to our own version of the truth. There is just the truth, the absolute truth. And we ought to be invested in that and affirming of that and observant of that in our own personal experiences. And we ought to see our commitments through regardless of the circumstances that life may deal us. We ought to be committed to our word, to the commitments that we make come what may. That in and of itself stands to make us different than the world around us. And that's exactly, I believe, what Jesus intends when he said verses ago that we are to be the salt and the light of the world. Now there's a third principle that Jesus outlines here in our passage in the closing verse of this paragraph, specifically verse 37. Jesus says there, but let your word yes be yes and your no be no, anything more than this is from the evil one. This is where we begin to press deeper. This is the part of the paragraph where Jesus reveals with some force that the problem is not external but internal. The problem is our hearts. Our hearts are bent on deception. No one had to train you to lie You will not have to teach your children to lie. You were born that way. I have a two-year-old at home who is a living testament to the reality that we are born in sin. 
Now I have a 12 and a 15-year-old who are more advanced versions of this same principle. There is this mysterious ghost person named Not Me who lives at my house, and he does everything they're not supposed to do. It's always Not Me. We didn't train them that way. They were born that way, and you were too. The problem with the oath-taking system in Jesus' day and the problem with the oath-taking system in our day is that it's made necessary by the reality that we are all born with deceitful hearts. The answer to needing to make a vow or swear an oath about every issue in order to prove your reliability is to speak the truth always, so much so that your yes as yes stands on its own, your no as no stands on its own, that you are so trustworthy, so reliable, that you need not invoke the name of God, nor Jerusalem, nor heaven, nor earth, in order to prove your trustworthiness about a given issue. Anything more than that, the need for oath-taking is the result of the evil one's influence in life and in our society. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. There's a secondary application here, right? You ought to be able to say yes or no and it have its fully intended effect without the addition of an oath and I would add, without the addition of a great deal of swearing. By swearing, I mean not swearing in the context of taking a vow or an oath, but in the context of vulgarity and cussing. I find this to be one of the most unnecessary and unhelpful of all sins. I could take you to the place and the date, describe for you the circumstances under which I said the last cuss word I ever said it was the summer of 2003. It was extremely hot. I was on a roof that was highly pitched with a young man who had no business being in my way. The problem with your cursing, the problem with your, your vulgarity is that it is the product of what is bubbling up in your heart. The problem with what you say is that it's a reflection of who you are in your heart of hearts. The problem with your deception is the same. It's giving expression to. It's communicating what you are in your heart. Now again, the answer is not just to modify the language that's being used, but to have our hearts greatly and powerfully changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want to discredit yourself and your circle of influence as quickly as anything else, begin to use the foul language that's customary in our culture, and you will quickly lose a gospel audience with all who hear. Jesus stood outside the palace court as the court or, or the judgment of Jesus was unfolding just inside when he needed to distance himself from Jesus in an instant, when he needed to speak severely that he had no relationship whatsoever to our Savior Jesus Christ, he, he used his mouth. Many of you equally discredit yourself, invalidate your gospel witness with the language that you use. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. But the primary focus of Jesus' teaching here is on truthfulness. That we be the kind of people as Christians who are so dependable that a simple yes or no is sufficient to prove our reliability. 
We're just steady, steadfast. If we say it, you can take it to the bank. You can trust our word. If we say it, it's as good as done. We have a saying in our family. If, if I tell the boys something that they don't believe, and then it proves to be true, and they see it unfold, I will say to them, if I tell you a chicken will pull a plow, hook him up. And they kind of like that, you know. That's kind of our country Mississippi way of saying, I told you, and now you see. We ought to be people of integrity and uprightness and truthfulness with everything that we say, with everything that we do, with our affirmations. With our affirmations, we ought to be speaking the truth. This, this means sharing and retweeting and liking and affirming senseless, mindless lies on social media as well. We're to be truth tellers in every area of our life. Now, we noted moments ago that we are born with hearts inclined toward deception. And the only real answer to that is to be born again. And the Bible promises a new birth by faith in Jesus, one where we're born with a heart of integrity and honesty a heart that has been liberated from our bondage to deception. Have you noticed that there's a certain slavish way that deception and lies have in our life? Some people find themselves trapped in lies, trapped in deception. They've built this whole framework of lies. Their life is just this great big deceptive house of cards, and they're building it up over time. And the further along they get in this narrative, the more difficult it is for them to draw back or to be honest about what the circumstances really are. Because when they tell the truth, that whole house of cards comes tumbling down. But there's another way that deception that lies has a slavish effect in our life. It has the effect of bringing us into bondage. You, you know people who just do not seem to possess the ability to tell the truth. They would climb up on this building to tell you a lie before they'd stand on the ground to tell the truth. Who won't tell the truth when the truth would serve them just as well or better than the lie they've concocted would serve them. Lying, deception, deceit, it has a slavish way over our life. And I want you to hear me clearly this morning. I want you to know that the only begotten Son of God has said you may know the truth and the truth will set you free. Some of you this morning are living with a lie that you've been living with for days and weeks and years and months and maybe even decades in some of your experiences. And I want you to know today that there is freedom from the bondage of deception to be found in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. You must only come to Christ for grace and for mercy and forgiveness. You can know the truth and the truth can make you free. Don't you want freedom? Don't you want the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy that can only be found in Jesus? Now, I knew, preparing this week for this morning's message, that it would not land in the same way that the last few weeks have. It, it, it's difficult to communicate about honesty and dishonesty in a way that feels as personal as divorce and remarriage as adultery, 
and even relationship issues that create bitterness and hostility in our heart. But if you would allow me just to press around here for just a moment. How many of you hate to be lied to? You just hate to be lied to. I do too. Most all of us, you're affirming with a nod, with a spurt, with a raised hand. We hate to be lied to. And if I could just play armchair psychologist for just a moment, I think at least a part of the reason we hate so badly to be lied to is because our tendency is to hate in others what we hate most about ourselves. We're able to justify and suppress our dis dishonesty and our deceptive hearts, but when we see that manifest in others, we're able then to give a personality to what we hate so much in our experience and to condemn it without exception. We hate dishonesty. We don't mind it when it's our own dishonesty, but we really hate it in others because somewhere deep down we know personally how wrong it is and it disgusts us even about ourselves. And I want you to know that what Jesus holds forth in this passage is forgiveness and grace and mercy for even the personal sin that makes us the sickest. Those things about your life that you hate the most, that you wish that you had the power to change, Jesus has it. And he offers it freely to all who come to him in faith. Do you know Jesus? Do you love him? Do you trust him? You can labor and strain and strive in your own power, but the heart with which you were born is bent on lying. It cannot shoot the straight shot. Only by the new birth, only by the new birth can you be freed from the bondage of deception. Would you join with me as we go to God in prayer and ask that God would search us over and give us new hearts? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. Lord, we cast ourselves at your feet. We feel the heavy weight of guilt over our deception, over the many falsehoods that we've involved ourselves in, Lord, in more subtle ways and in overt ways. We ask, God, that you would forgive us of our great sin. God, I pray that you'd give us new hearts, hearts of honesty and integrity and uprightness. Help us to be people of truth who speak the truth in love who follow through with the commitments and the obligations that we enter into. God, I pray that in doing so, you would make us different than the world around us. Make us a people so deeply reliable that our simple yes or no would be sufficient to prove our trustworthiness. God, I pray that, Lord, you would search us over, each of us, that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to discern as we examine ourselves God, where there's a chasm between us and heaven, where there's a need for reconciliation, God, I pray that you grant good, clear gospel understanding that our only hope for forgiveness, that our only hope for salvation is to look to Jesus with eyes of faith, God, to plead for forgiveness and to receive freely the grace that is undeserved. God, I pray that you would move among us in these next moments, that your will would be done and that your name would be praised. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.